Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 8 today. I've been preaching through the book of, or the letter of 2 Corinthians this summer. The title of the message is Your Giving Motive. Let me just ask you this to start with. How many of you, how many of you like receiving gifts? Raise your hand. How many of you like giving gifts? I think maybe more of you like that. Sometimes it's hard to receive gifts. Sometimes it's a little easier to give. Especially if you're getting a gift that you kind of open it and go, oh, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure I'm going to use this or I've already got 12 of them. And it's fun to give gifts. We're looking specifically this morning as the Apostle Paul talks about giving in the church and he's going to talk about money. So if that makes you nervous... You need to hang on. It's okay to look at the person next to you and say, the preacher's talking about money. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that's what Paul talks about. He's already talked about in the first Corinthian, the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He talks to them about the fact, I'm coming to receive an offering from you. In fact, it's been about a year by the time this letter is written and this news gets to them. It's been about a year. So they began to receive this offering for churches that really were struggling because of persecution and poverty. And he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, and I need to back up and remind you, we talked about this earlier in the summer, for those of you that weren't here, Corinth was a wealthy city. It was also a wicked and perverse city. They were blessed to be right at the trade roads. People had to, people that were trading merchandise and shipping things from one area to another, came through Corinth. So it was a wealthy area, but it was also wicked area. And yet the church was growing there. So let me ask you this. When we pass the plate, not just at the chapel, but in your own church, why do you contribute? A lot of talk's been hitting the news lately that there's going to come a day where you don't get a tax exemption anymore for what you give to charities specifically to your church, you're probably going to lose that. And I wonder how that's going to affect giving in the church. In fact, I don't wonder. I'm pretty sure it will affect giving in the church. Let me just say the commands in the Old Testament to tithe and to give, to sacrificially give, had nothing to do with tax exemptions. But that's why a lot of people, that's their motive. Hey, I got there's some people, this has never happened to me, there's some people at the end of the year who have to give money away. They're like, my accountant is telling me I need to give away X amount of dollars. Don't raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. I just, I've never experienced that. My accountant's never said to me, you know what? You've got some money over here. You've got to give this away. In fact, at the end of the year, my accountant is saying, you need somebody to give you some money. <laughs> but what's your motive for giving? And I know what it is when we're swapping gifts at Christmas time or birthdays. Sometimes we only give gifts... Because we know somebody's giving something to us. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Well, i got to get them something because they've got me something. Or we're going to this party and everybody's bringing a gift. So i got to bring a gift. Reminds me of a bad Seinfeld episode. If you've ever watched Seinfeld, George Costanza hated giving anything. He was tightwad. But what is your motive for giving? And specifically, what's your motive for giving to God? Some in the church give to the church and keep strings to it. I'm, I'm giving this to you if you do this. They'll withhold their giving 
if they're unhappy about something. And I think that, that's an impure motive. It's an improper motive. Once you give something, it's gone. It's a gift. It doesn't belong to you anymore. And really, who does it belong to? All of it belong to anyway. God. So hang on. We're going to talk about money this morning. We're going to talk about giving. First of all, the example of others. Paul is going to lift up a church as an example of godly giving. And it's actually the church in Macedonia region. It's a region that today would be the northern part of Greece. Let me read just the beginning of the passage, verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's basically saying, let me just give you an example of a good church. Now, some people are bothered by that. Somebody, some person said there's nothing more annoying than a good example. And if you've ever experienced, if you ever had an older brother, older sister, and some teacher, coach, somebody said to you, why can't you be more like them? That may tell you a little bit of the attitude we get sometimes when somebody's a good example. Paul says, I'm using this, this group of churches in Macedonia. Specifically, he's talking about the church in Philippi, and he wrote a letter to the Philippians. The church in Thessalonica, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. And the church in Berea. He said, let me use them as an example of the grace of God. In fact, the word grace or a form of the word grace occurs five times in these eight verses that we're going to look at this morning. And so Paul says, now brethren, and basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm shifting topics here a little bit. We've ended chapter 7. We're talking about something different. He says, now, brethren, I wish to make known to you the grace of God. In other words, Paul's saying, I wish you would understand better the grace of God and how it's been demonstrated in these churches of Macedonia. Now, I want you to catch how they gave, kind of the circumstances of their giving and how they, even in the midst of the circumstances they were under, how they, how they demonstrated grace and love, really, through their giving. He says, in a great ordeal, literally a test or trial of affliction. Paul's talked about affliction before, but affliction literally means pressure. The same part of the word would have been used for how they stomped grapes, how they would tread on grapes to get the juice out of grapes. You know they do that barefooted? Did you all know that? You know why they do it barefooted? This, is just, this has nothing to do with the sermon. It just hit me. I learned this when I was in the Holy Land. The reason they do it barefooted is if you wear sandals, it will crush the seed and make the juice and ultimately the wine bitter. You don't want to get the seed crushed, so they did it barefooted. As opposed to olives, when they crushed olives, they did it with a big stone. Why? Because they wanted to get the juice that's also in the seed. Now, some of you are thinking, that's all I've learned today. Well, it's good. You can go home you learn something. There's some kids going to go home, Mom, we got any grapes? I want to walk barefoot. But he's saying in a great ordeal of affliction, literally, not only were they extremely poor, 
They were being persecuted for their faith. And that was really something the church in Corinth was not experiencing. They were experiencing a little bit of persecution, mainly from false teachers. But they weren't experiencing poverty exactly. And, and this, these churches in the Macedonia region are experiencing both of those. And then look at it. almost sounds like he says the exact opposite. The next two things he said. Their abundance of joy. Literally, they are overflowing. To be over and above with joy in the midst of their deep poverty. Overflow joy, you can't fathom the depths of their poverty. And some of you won't get that. Some people in America especially, we don't get that because we think joy comes from stuff. How can you experience joy when you have nothing? Well, until you understand where joy comes from, you won't get it. Where does joy come from? It comes from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, and so on. Joy. I saw a sign in the bookstore that said, Joy is not the absence of sorrow. It is the presence of God. Until we get the fact that you can have joy in the midst of sorrow, you can have joy in the midst of poverty. If you've ever been out of the country, and especially if you meet Christians from some other countries, you'll see some of the most joy-filled people you've ever met in your life who have nothing. First time I really ever went out of the country and, and, and did a mission trip was over 20 years ago now. In fact, it was the year after the Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe. I went to the Ukraine. And I had an interpreter. His, his name was Misha. He was about 15 years old. Seriously, that was my interpreter for the week. I, I came close to threatening him by the time the week was over. But Misha had nothing. He, he had this little fanny pack, and the only thing I ever saw him pull out of there was a pair of little fingernail scissors. And he used them to clip his nails. He also used them to clean his teeth. He didn't even have a toothbrush. In fact, one night, I, I took one of the deacons from my church. There were three of us in this room. We had three single beds in this little room we were staying in. Bed here, bed here, bed here. And I think I must have been in the middle. Nixon was on one side of me. Misha was on the other side. And I heard this sound one night. I heard, I thought a rat was in a room. And I said, Nixon, do you hear that? Yeah. What is that? Sounds like a mouse. It was Misha cleaning his teeth. He was just like that. I thought, let's get this boy a toothbrush for crying out loud. He had two pairs of pants. He had a pair of corduroy jeans and a pair of corduroy shorts. It was July. And one of the things that amazed me the most was the prayers of the Ukrainian Christians that I was over there speaking to. In fact, I asked, tell me what they're praying, because I, I couldn't speak their language. Ninety percent of their prayers were thanking God for things, for blessings. And in my little Western mindset, you know what went through my mind? What are they thankful for? They have nothing. Then I realized, no, they have everything. Our joy is so controlled by circumstances and by what we have and our stuff. They really had experienced joy because it had nothing to do with their stuff. They didn't have a lot of stuff to worry about. Some people in America, we spend time worrying about stuff. We got so much stuff, we got we to gotta rent warehouses to keep our stuff. We had a warehouse when we first moved to the beach, keeping our stuff. And I realized we had about $500 worth of stuff in this warehouse. 
we were paying $50 a month to store $500 worth of stuff. You know, after about two years, I realized this is not a good deal. So we have a yard sale. That's where people come to your house and buy stuff you don't want and take it to their house, and like a year later, they have their own yard sale. That's what you sell at yard sales a lot of times. About 90% of it is just stuff somebody else bought at a yard sale. They've got it, now they're having their own yard sale. We could cut out the middleman and probably save some time. But I, I just want you to get what Paul is saying is he's using a church that was experiencing deep poverty. They had nothing. And in the midst of that, they're being persecuted for their faith. And yet Paul said they are overflowing in wealth of liberality. They were rich in generosity. In fact, check this out. Never seen this happen in a church in America. It said they have given according to their ability. In fact, Paul says, I testify. In other words, Paul said, let me call myself to the stand. I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm, test- I'm being a witness to you. That they've given not only according to their ability, and the word ability is that word dunamis, that we get power from. They've given according to their own power. They've even given beyond their own means. You say, how do you do that? Folks, it's the word sacrifice. That's what was happening in the first century church. They were sacrificing for the sake of other believers. Because to be a Christian in the first century church a lot of time meant you'd lost everything. In fact, the reason the church in Jerusalem was struggling so much is you remember Pentecost? Pilgrims from all over the known world of that time had come to Jerusalem. And many of them had come to faith in Christ. 5,000 on one occasion, 3,000 on another occasion. Finally got to where they couldn't count them. The church was growing so fast. What's happened? They, They wanted to stay in Jerusalem to grow spiritually. This is their new life. So they've been cut off from home. And sometimes they couldn't even go home if they wanted to. Now they've trusted Christ. They couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. And hotels were not back then like they are today anyway. So they were having to stay with other believers. And they were impoverished. Not to mention the fact the Roman government was taking everything away from them anyway, especially if you were a Christian. And so when that word got to the church in Macedonia, they realized, you know what, we don't have much. But what we have, we'll even sacrifice to help these Christians back in Jerusalem. And so Paul is on, seriously, several-year mission to receive an offering for the church. And they gave of their own accord. Paul didn't have to manipulate them. He didn't have to coerce them. He didn't have to intimidate them. They gave freely of their own accord. And then check this out. Begging us. (laughs) Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. There's the word grace again. The word favor there is the root. The word's grace. What does grace mean? It, It means unearned favor. Grace is this. Grace means you're receiving something you don't deserve. So Paul said they begged us. Have you ever done that at your church? Begged them to take an offering. Wouldn't it be cool if the next time your pastor got up and said, okay, we're about to receive the offering, just the church broke out in spontaneous applause. It would freak the preacher out, I'm telling you. Try it. Go back to Kentucky. When they start receiving the offering next Sunday, just thank you, God, we're able to give. That ought to be our attitude. Students from Columbia, try that. You probably won't ever get to come back to the chapel. Where are y'all learning this stuff? (laughs) But they begged for the opportunity to participate in the support 
of the saints. Can I just share a personal anecdote there? We have a ministry at the chapel called the Children's Home Ministry, and we raise funds to bring children's homes to the chapel. There's not one on campus right now. There was, they left Friday. So if you've been here some this week, you saw a children's home. We'll have 13 of them this year. We have a top 20 list in the dorms that shows the churches that have given to the children's home ministry. And to make the top 20, you just have to give more than the 21st person did. The thing that has amazed me the last few years is that two of the church names on the list, or two of the names on the list, are children's homes. Isn't that amazing? Two of the groups that we're raising money to help bring here, and they come for free. They're not charged a penny to stay here. They are taken to places like the Carolina Opry and the water park. And for many of these kids, it's the first time they've ever seen the beach. In fact, we've heard some of them say, first time I ever felt loved in my life was at Garden City Chapel. We try to roll out the red carpet for them and do some things. And we have pictures of kids that will go to the beach. In fact, we hear their, their drivers will tell us, when we get to the Waccamaw River, the kids will say, is this the ocean? <laughs> no, you just wait till you see it. And I think about a church that gave out of nothing. And, and then I think about there's kids in children's homes that are raising money to help support our children's home ministry. It's pretty incredible. So that's the example that Paul is giving the church in Corinth. He said they gave not as they expected, but here's the key, folks. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 34, basically says, for where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You look at what's the most important thing in your life, that's what's got your heart. And once God gets your heart, the treasure follows. If you're struggling giving, if you're approaching life with a clenched fist, it's probably because God doesn't have your heart. You may just be religious. And religious people give. You know why religious people give? They get noticed. They want to make sure somebody gives them credit. Spiritual people, on the other hand, give because they're overflowing with a heart that's already been given over to God. And they recognize He owns it all anyway. He's entrusted it all to me in stewardship. They first gave themselves. And then Paul offers a challenge. Let me read verses 6 through 8. So, we urge Titus that he had previously made a beginning so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So Paul has held up an example, and now he says, okay, so because of that, I'm urging you. It's the word meaning I'm calling you near to my side. I want you to hear what I'm saying here. I'm urging you. That as you've previously made this beginning, Paul said, you've been receiving this offering for about a year. You've kind of waned in your enthusiasm. Titus is on his way. So complete it. Fulfill it. This gracious work. Literally, bring it to an end. And then he said, just as you abound in everything. Paul's saying, count your blessings, people. First word he uses is the word faith. You're abounding in faith. Literally, firm 
persuasion. What's he talking about? He's talking about the faith they had to place their trust in Jesus Christ in salvation. You're abounding there. They had saving faith. You're, you're abounding in utterance. It's really the word logos. It, it doesn't just mean they're hearing a lot of words. It means doctrine. You're abounding in that. You're abounding in knowledge, which is more than just the act of knowing. It's the ability to apply knowledge to everyday life or to apply doctrine to everyday life. You're abounding. You're overflowing with earnestness, literally eagerness, spiritual passion. You're also abounding with the love we inspired in you. So those five things, you're abounding in these things. They're overflowing in you. There's something you need to add to that. There's something you need to be overflowing in as well, and that is this gracious work also. In fact, I think Paul's saying if those things are genuine, then giving is going to be a natural outflow of what God's already doing in your life, all of these blessings. And he says we're not speaking as a command. Paul's saying this is not an injunction. This isn't a decree. Generosity really needs to be a spontaneous overflow or it it degenerates into the law. Paul's saying, I'm not adding another law. I don't want you to give legalistically. We'll, We'll look next week at how we give purposefully as we've purposed in our heart. But Paul says, I'm not making a law out of this. This isn't a command. I'm appealing to you. I'm urging you based on what God's done in your life. But by it, you're going to prove the sincerity of your love. Folks, love, genuine love, will express itself in action. Love is a verb. Girls, you're going to have a guy someday say, I love you. But you're going to watch his life and you're going to say, no, you don't. Guys, it may may happen with you. You may say, she says she loves me, but I don't see any evidence of it. Love shouldn't be manipulated. Love ought to be pure. Love ought to be genuine. And Paul's saying to this church in Corinth, you are abounding in all these things. So abound in love also. And show it through your generosity. And then, folks, my, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is the last one. We'll close with verse 9, verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know. Remember he had said at the beginning, verse 1, I want you to know. Now he's saying, you know. This is something I'm telling you. You got this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's just unpack that for a moment, because folks, this is grace. You want a picture of grace. What Jesus did is that picture. Demonstration of grace. Unlike the rich of this world who who rarely will impoverish themselves by their giving, Jesus, the Holy One, the Worthy One, God himself impoverished impoverished himself to make unworthy ones rich. Paul says, you know. The Corinthians had experienced it. Paul knew they knew this. He didn't have to command. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think Paul used all three terms there? I think it's important. The word Lord means supreme in authority. 
Jesus was the name when he came to earth to be born in Bethlehem, placed in a stable, didn't have a crib, placed in a feeding trough. And Christ was that word from the Old Testament that meant the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who would come and save his people. Jesus used all those. You know the grace, the undeserved favor, the unmerited favor, the gift that we didn't deserve of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. And I think we've got to be careful in our, in our mentality because when we think of rich, we just think of stuff. Did Jesus have stuff? Oh, yeah. But it was way more than that. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, Jesus shared in the glory of the Godhead. He was God from the beginning. He was there at creation and before that. In fact, Paul to the Philippians put it this way in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Talking about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, to be clung to, held on to. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being willing and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Yes, when Jesus was born, he was born almost into utter obscurity. He didn't have a midwife or a doctor help bring him into the world. His mother had to wrap him in cloths, and they didn't have anywhere to put him. Had to put him in a feeding trough. There wasn't a big sign going off saying, the king's here. In fact, who did the angels announce his birth to? Literally outcast of society. The shepherds out on the hillside. But folks, he gave up way more than just physical comfort. He gave up the glory of heaven. He gave up equality with God. Now, did he quit being God? No. Jesus was still fully God on earth. But he gave up the privileges, the glory that he enjoyed in heaven. And he came to earth where people abused him, mistreated him, and ultimately put him to death. Why did he do that? He did it for your sake. He did it for people who were impoverished so that they could become rich. The problem in America is there are some people that are in abject poverty spiritually that don't even know it. The thing that will keep you from recognizing your need is if you've got a bunch of stuff. In fact, you remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. He said, I've already done all that. Jesus said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you own. Give it away. And come follow me. And you know what it says right after that? It says his face fell. I wish it had fallen literally. That'd be cool. Every time somebody rejected Jesus, their face falls off. <laughs> That's not what it means. It just meant his, his smile turned upside down. And he walked away. He walked away from Jesus because he had a lot of stuff. Jesus came and left the glory of heaven to become poor so that we who are poor, we who are desperately needy, could experience the glory of heaven. 
If all you think about when you read that is riches in the case of the stuff of this world, let me just give you a little glimpse into heaven. The stuff that we hold so dear, like precious gems and pearls and gold, you know what those are going to be used for in heaven? Building material. The streets are going to be made out of gold. And I promise you, when you get into the presence of God, you're not going to go around thinking, how can I get some of this? It would be just as stupid as you walking out here saying, I'm digging up a piece of this asphalt. Because one day it might be worth something. In fact, you don't have to dig it up. Just wait. There will be a pothole for them probably this afternoon. But for some people, they miss what it means that Jesus gave it all up to come for your sake so that you could experience that for eternity. Don't miss the glory of heaven because you're seeking the stuff of this world. You know what the Bible says is going to happen to all this stuff? It's going to melt with intense heat. None of it's going to be around anymore. In fact, God's got a new plan. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and it's a whole lot better than this one. Why did he do it? He did it for your sake. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 4 says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Last thing I say, God has an inheritance. It's got your name on it. It's reserved for you. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior today. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. And Lord, I recognize that there's people in this congregation that Some who've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. They've never given their heart to you. Today is the call to salvation for them. It's a day where they recognize that Jesus gave it all up for them. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. Lord, there's also people here that are like me at times. Lord, we get so enamored with the stuff of this world and we forget this is temporary. This isn't our home. We can't build our treasure here. God, thank you for that reminder this morning and for the grace of God that was poured out on the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.